Take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 John as we continue this summer series entitled Summer of Hope. And just so you know, so you're aware, in four weeks we're going to start a brand new series. We're going to be looking at the book of 2 Thessalonians. We looked at the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul's letter to that church he planted in the church in the city of Thessalonica. And we'll return to what is our normal preaching diet, the way I put it. We normally preach through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, because that's the way the Bible was written, in whole books, verse by verse. And so that's typically our pattern of instruction and teaching and preaching. This summer, we've been doing what I call a top-positional series, where we take a topic, the believer's hope, and we exposit specific passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that give understanding to that topic. But again, we'll be returning September 19th, Lord willing, to an expositional series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Well, again, with your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 3, we're going to consider a subject this morning that I've entitled, The Confidence of Hope. I've reminded you multiple times throughout this series that the believer's hope is not like the world's hope. When the world uses this term of hope, or this concept of hope, essentially what it is, is wishful thinking. I hope my team wins. I hope it doesn't rain on my party. I hope is wishful thinking. But the believer's hope is not wishful thinking. The believer's hope is settled. It is assured. It is certain. And it is confident. Why? Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have a hope because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so there is certainty. There is assurance. There is confidence. And it's this confidence we're going to consider today from the text of Scripture before us. The confidence that is a result of the hope we have in Jesus and his good news of the gospel. So let's look at 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 19 through 24 for our focal passage today. The Bible says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. I love the story that's told of the lion who needed a little more confidence. He was feeling kind of lacking in confidence, and so he decided to go through the jungle and reassert his authority as the king of the jungle and look for any animal that he could come across to assert that authority. So first he comes across a monkey, and to this monkey he roars, who's the king of the jungle? And the monkey replied, oh, you are, oh, great lion. He goes a little further, finds a little bit bigger animal. He finds a zebra, and he roars to the zebra, who is the king of the jungle? And the zebra responds, thinking he might be lunch, Oh, you are, oh, great lion. He goes a little further, and he finds a giraffe. 
and he roars at the giraffe, who is the king of the jungle? And the giraffe says, oh, well, you are great and mighty lion. He's feeling pretty confident at this point. Then he sees an elephant in the distance, and he goes up to the elephant, hey, who is the king of the jungle? The elephant didn't say anything. He just picked him up with his trunk and slammed him against a tree, picked him up again, slammed him on a rock, and then picked him up and dunked him in the river. And the lion said, well, if you don't know the answer, you don't have to get so mean about it. Confidence. What is our source of confidence? Are we confident just in what other people think about us? Does our confidence come from what we think about ourselves? Do we have confidence because of emotions, whether positive or negative, feelings? This is what this passage here in 1 John we just read is really describing for us. The true basis, the true source of the believer's confidence. And what the passage is talking about is confidence in our salvation. Confidence that we are truly born again, assured. This confidence is a fruit. It's a result of the hope we have in Jesus. In fact, I don't know if you noticed it, but this paragraph is bracketed by essentially the same phrase. Verse 19 starts off, by this we shall know that we are in the truth. And the last phrase of verse 24 says, by this we know that he abides in us. So those two phrases, by this we know, by this we shall know, they bracket this whole section, this whole pericope, if you will. This is knowledge based upon whether or not we are truly born again. And in between those brackets of by this we shall know, he gives evidence. He gives reasons that we can have confidence. There's really three things from the text I want us to consider as John gives this evidence for the confidence we can have because of the hope of the gospel. First one is this. Number one, conscience activated. Conscience activated activated. Again, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. How? For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Here's what we know based on not only experience, but also based on the word of God. Every human being has been given what's known as a conscience a conscience. Now, this word conscience that we often use, in, it comes from two Latin terms. Look at the next slide. Conscience essentially comes from the word con, that means with, and science, that means knowledge. So the word conscience literally means with knowledge, with knowledge. It's a form of self-knowledge. Your conscience is self-knowledge. It self-interprets. It defines your thoughts, your intentions, your motives, your actions, your feelings. And the Bible teaches that, again, everybody has a conscience. Everybody has been given this system or this mechanism, this device given by God of self-knowledge. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, when Paul says Gentiles, he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about godless pagans of that first century. They have no knowledge of the one true God, and therefore they have no knowledge of God's 
law. But they act upon the law of God because the law of God has been written upon their conscience, upon their heart. They, by nature, understand there's a such thing as right and wrong, good, bad, moral, immoral. They have this because they've been created with it, a conscience. In fact, look at this next slide. The conscience is God's guilt-producing warning device. Our conscience is God's given guilt-producing warning device. In the same way that every human being has a physical mechanism, a physical device to protect you called pain. Have you ever thought of the fact that pain, the ability to sense pain, to feel pain, is actually a gift? What if we didn't have the capacity to feel pain? Well, we would do things that would injure us. We would do things that would harm us. In fact, the, the disease of leprosy, it's not a disease that actually gnaws away or creates sores or eats away at people. What leprosy does is it deadens our nerves. And so you can't feel this sense of pain. And so people who have leprosy, they do things that injure themselves and harm themselves. They drink boiling hot drinks and burn their throats. They do things because they've been desensitized to pain. Well, in the same way that pain is God's gift of a physical warning device that we could injure ourselves, listen, God's given us a moral warning device called our conscience. And so our conscience speaks to us and helps to dis, uh, in, uh, tell us what is right and what is wrong. But here's the thing. Satan does not want you to be motivated by your conscience. He tries to distract and dissuade you from following the law of God that Paul said is written upon even the hearts of pagans, of Gentiles. How does he do it? Well, we are not ignorant of his devices. We're aware of Satan's schemes. And I want to point out three ways that Satan really attempts to short-circuit the work of the God-given warning device of our conscience. First of all, he seeks to seduce it. Satan seeks to seduce our conscience. What I mean by seduce is he, he seeks to cause us to believe falsely, which in turn misinforms our conscience. And this shouldn't surprise us because lying, deception, falsehood masquerading as truth, this has been Satan's strategy from the beginning. It's his primary we- weapon. Let me give you an example. The religion of Islam. It's a doctrine of demons. It's satanic. And it's such of a satanic nature that it can actually, through this false conscience, through this false law, Satan seduces people to think flying planes into towers and killing thousands of people is good. It's moral. It's right. Not only that, it's God's will, they would say. In other words, you give people a standard of morality that is a lie, and they begin to live and function and think based upon this seductive standard of reality. Their conscience will react to that standard. But Satan's not just seducing people's conscience through Islam. He's doing it every day in Western society and thought, in our own culture. Today, our culture is putting forward and communicating standards of morality that are diametrically opposed to God and his law. Would you agree with that? And so people are, are beginning, beginning to be immersed into experiences and ideals 
and philosophies, through entertainment, through social media, through friendships, through relationships, through the news, through secular education, through government indoctrination camps, to believe things and to be misinformed and to be seduced into thinking what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is moral, what is immoral. But not only does Satan attack our conscience through seduction, secondly, he seeks to silence it. He seeks to silence it. How does he do that? By telling you, you have no reason to feel guilty. You have no reason to have any remorse for any decisions, any thoughts, any motives, any actions. You don't need to feel convicted. And so again, we've created this whole culture based on self-esteem. And we want to make sure we tell everybody that who they are is exactly who they should be. And what they do, what they choose, is exactly what they should do and what they should choose. How stunning, how brave. We've heard those terms thrown around. We have a whole movement today telling folks just how great they are, that they can identify however they want to identify. They can utilize whatever pronouns they want to utilize because your truth is the only truth that matters. What is Satan doing? He's silencing the God-given warning device of the conscience. He seduces us. He silences the conscience. Thirdly, Satan will seek to sear it, sear the conscience. Now, all three of these schemes he uses in connection together And Paul identified that it is, in fact, Satan who is the source of searing men's conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said this to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, now the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, expressly says that in later times, we're in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, what does it mean to have a seared conscience? It means, again, you're desensitized. You're desensitized to the moral compass that God has put in you with his law written upon you. Your nerves are dead. It's like something that's been burned so many times. That's what searing is. There's no sense of pain there anymore. And so by continuing to violate the conscience over and over again, it builds up so much spiritual scar tissue that you can't even recognize it anymore. These are the things that the enemy does. He seduces our conscience with false knowledge. He silences our conscience by saying all guilt is, is wrong and you have nothing to feel guilty for. And he scars and sears our conscience over and over again. Now, I gave this lengthy discussion about the human conscience because I want us to understand this proof that the Apostle John is giving about why we can have confidence in hope. How do we know we are in the truth? How do we know that we are children of God and that God abides in us and that we abide in him? Here's how. When we have an activated conscience, when our conscience has been activated by the very spirit of God who lives within us. So what are some evidences that we have an activated conscience? Well, this is where not going verse by verse through a whole book of the Bible really hinders us a little bit because the fuller context of 1 John chapter 3 gives us uh, reasons and context of how we can see this in this chapter. In this chapter, there are two things 
John mentions that indicate genuine conversion. How do you know you've really been born again? How do you know you've really been saved? Jonathan Edwards called these holy affections. These holy affections are put there by God. So do you have these? Well, in 1 John chapter 3, in verses 4 through 12, he talks about a desire to live in holiness. If you are not genuinely born again, there will be no innate desire given by the Holy Spirit to live a holy life, to walk in obedience to the commands of God. Second, he says, another thing that God does in the life of a believer is he puts within him a love for other Christians, a love for the brethren. As we just prayed for the brethren in Afghanistan, many of you just now were moved to tears. You've never met them. You don't have anything in common with them socioeconomically, racially, linguistically, but you love them, right? Who put that there? God put that there. This is the change. This is the alteration of the heart that God performs. We walk in truth and we obey his commands. Here's what happens. When you have a conscience that's been activated by the Spirit of God, and when you violate those two proofs that we see in 1 John chapter 3, there is conviction in your heart. There is even a sense of condemnation in your heart. Your heart condemns you. When you live in an unholy way, when you speak unholy things as a Christian with an activated conscience, do you feel it? Sure you do. When you're unloving to another believer, do you sense it? Sure you do. Your heart condemns you. Notice what John said again in verse 20. He said, whenever our heart condemns us, not if our heart condemns us, but you can know there are going to be times, Christian, your heart's going to condemn you. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church, and he uses the plural personal pronoun. John includes himself here. When our heart condemns us, he lumps himself in with us. And then the next phrase, God is greater than our heart. What happens? We take this sense of guilt from our activated conscience because we violated God's truth, and we hold that guilt, we hold that condemnation up to God, the truth of God. And what do we find? Romans 5.1, he has poured his love into our hearts that we have the very love of God. We have peace with God. We hold this conviction. We hold this condemning heart up to the knowledge of God. And we remember Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you take this condemning heart and you hold it up against the promises of God. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God sees our greatest weaknesses. God knows our most profound failures. God interprets the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Even back in the dark corners of the closet of our mind, we don't want anyone else to know about. God knows about it, and he sees it. But God is greater than our heart. God is greater than that guilt. God is greater than that condemnation. He knows more about our shortcomings than we even know about our shortcomings. So there's no point in pretending. 
He knows. And what John is saying, that with our activated conscience, and we take this condemnation of our souls and we hold it up to the goodness of God, God overcomes our doubts. God overcomes our fears. Why? Because God has forgiven us of all those things in Christ. He continues to even cleanse us. He sees the remaining sin that is there, but he continues to revive those holy affections we've talked about that he's planted within us. And this confidence that we're speaking of is literally in regard to our assurance of faith. Have you ever doubted your salvation? If you're a Christian and your heart is beating, the answer is yes. (laughs) Have you ever asked yourself the question, I wonder if I'm really saved? I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Those thoughts cross our minds, right? You with me? Am I really saved? Was I really converted? Am I really a child of God? This is the assurance. This is the confidence John's talking about. By this we know. By this we know. I would suggest to you that the fact that you do have doubts about your salvation, it indicates you really are saved. Here's why. The unbeliever does not doubt his or her salvation. The unbeliever does not wonder late at night, am I in Christ? Because he's never known what it's mean to be in Christ. Now, the unbeliever does lie awake at night and ask the big questions like, is there a God? Is there a purpose for my existence? Is there meaning to it all? But the unbeliever doesn't ask, am I in Christ? He's never been in Christ. But the believer would ask those questions. Why? When activities, decisions, thoughts, feelings are out of alignment with the holy affections God has planted there. So this activated conscience makes us aware God is at work in us, and it gives us confidence. It gives us assurance. And with that knowledge, it really leads right into the second thing from this passage I want us to see. Not only conscience activated, but secondly, courageous prayer. I want you to follow John's train of logic here. He says, God knows everything, even the deep, dark, dirty secrets in the back of the closet, yet he has forgiven us of everything. He has adopted us into his family, and he has declared you are not guilty, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what would that lead to in our lives? If we know our hearts that condemn us, and we say, but God knows our hearts, and he knows everything, and he has said we're not guilty, how would that impact our prayer life? Notice how John puts it in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence, there's our word, confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. I want you to think about the prodigal son here. You remember he took his inheritance, he went and spent it all on wild living. And then he hit rock bottom, right? And what did he do? He essentially wrote a speech a speech of contrition. And he's rehearsing that speech the whole way home. He's saying, if, if my father, who has so much stuff, would just take me in as a servant in his household, well, I'll be much better off. And from a far distance, the father sees the prodigal coming home. He runs out to greet him. He puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and throws a massive party. He began to understand 
his position in the family. This is what the father does. When we fail, when we falter, we don't come back into his presence as some second-class spiritual citizen. We come before him as a son and as a daughter. And here's how it works. I come back to the father admitting my failure, and he receives me with open arms. In this same epistle of 1 John, two chapters earlier, the apostle John put it this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then when I'm in the presence of God, I enter his throne room in prayer I'm not entering as the defendant before the judge and he's got his gavel in hand ready to convict me and send me to the gas chamber. I come before him as a son to a father and he's ready to embrace me and receive me and love me. Having this completely transformed status, John says this totally changes our outlook. Again, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, obviously, that phrase, whatever we ask, we receive from him, has been polluted and perverted by the health and wealth gospel charlatans of our day, right? Is is he saying that whatever you ask, you can receive it? Well, John actually expands on this concept two chapters later in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, 15. And this is the confidence, there's our word, that we have toward him, that if we ask, same concept, anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Key words, according to his will. I think what John's really driving at here is this. In light of the fact that you know your deep, dirty secrets, and in light of the fact that you know that God knows your deep, dirty secrets, and when you hold that condemning heart up to God, and God who knows it all says there is no condemnation, we come with a completely different means and, and asking in prayer. When we come to him in prayer, we're not coming to him saying, Lord, I really would like to have this Maserati I saw. We're not asking for possessions we're not asking for positions. Would you give me a, an increase of, in my power and influence? We're asking for grace. We're asking for more mercy. We're asking for power to walk in obedience to his commands, power to love the brothers as we've been called to love him. And we have the confidence, listen, to totally bear our souls open before our creator. Do you have that kind of relationship with anybody? Do you have a relationship like that with any other human where you know that you will be completely accepted and forgiven no matter what you say? We have some close relationships for sure. Spouse relationships, friendships, sibling relationships, parent-child relationships. But I would venture a guess none of us have a relationship like that with any other human. But God, the Father, the creator of the universe says, spill it all out. Pour it all out. 
And we can share with the Father boldly. We have confidence. In fact, the author of Hebrews put it this way. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, there's our word, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. We have this open invitation not to get more money or more goods, but to get more mercy and more grace. We come and we can bear our souls in the presence of our Creator who already knows it all anyway. The true needs of our hearts, the depth of our souls, they're met in that relationship with God. So what's the confidence we have? We gain confidence when we recognize, okay, yeah, I have an activated conscience. (laughs) I'm recognizing these things that I'm doing that are against God. We have a recognition and and a confidence when we have this courageous prayer to come before his throne and to find help in time of need. And thirdly, commandments obeyed. Commandments obeyed. And again, John moves in his train of thought from this condemning heart that shows us we have an activated conscience to courageous prayer, now commandments obeyed. And I want you to notice his connection between bold prayer, courageous prayer, and obedience to God's commands. Verse 22 again. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Sometimes I'm, a th- I'm afraid we think because we have two parts to our Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because we have two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we think in effect, there are two gods. There's the God of the Old Testament who is all about obeying commands, list of rules and regulations and laws. And then there's the God of the New Testament who's all about forgiveness and grace. Friend, are there two gods? There's one God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you don't think the God of the Old Testament is a God of mercy and forgiveness and grace, I would say go read your Old Testament. And if you don't think the God of the New Testament is a God that requires obedience to his commands, well, you need to read the New Testament. It's the same God. He's a God of forgiveness and grace, but he's also a God who says to his followers, obey what I say. Do what I say. Follow my commands. Jesus Loving, gracious, merciful, puppy-petting, baby-kissing Jesus. Notice what he said in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the test of true discipleship. Friend, this is the language we use even when we come to this meal once a month. Monthly, we come to this communion meal as a congregation as a covenant family of faith. Welcome home. This is the family meal. And every time we share this meal, I do what's called fencing the table. By fencing, I try to describe who can come to this table and who cannot, who should receive this meal and who should not. And I use virtually the same language. It's the language of the Great Commission. This meal is open 
to all baptized believers in Jesus Christ who are seeking to observe all that Christ has commanded them. Why do I use that language? Did Christ command his followers to be baptized, yes or no? Yes. If you've not obeyed that command of the Lord to be baptized, then you are not keeping his commandments. You maybe shouldn't take this meal. But it's not just baptism. There are many other commands the Lord has given us, and we'll rehearse some of those here. But we fence this table so we know this is a covenant family meal that we take in communion, that's the word, together to those who love Jesus and obey his commands. What are the commands John's talking about? Look particularly in verse 23. And this is the commandment that we, two parts, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, part two, and love one another just as he has commanded us. One command, two parts. Part one, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Are we just believing the letters? J-E-S-U-S, C-H-R-I-S-T? No, we believe what those names represent. As the word came to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. We recognize the name of Jesus means he's our savior. Christ, anointed one, Messiah of God. And he shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so what John is saying here is that, here's what the commandment is. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus. You believe that he is Emmanuel. But why was he focused on this? Because just as in the 21st century, in the first century, there were all kinds of questions and controversies about the nature of Jesus. Was he really God's son? Was he eternally existent before anything was anything? Was Jesus there? The Mormons deny that truth. This is the command that you believe in the name of Jesus the Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Do you believe that? He's Savior. And then further, well, in, in, in 1 John, John brings this up again and again and again through this epistle, that you believe rightly about who Jesus is. Let me just give you some examples. 1 John chapter 2. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Chapter 4, verse 14. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Over and over and over again, John emphasizes this. You must believe rightly about the nature of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is central. And I don't know if you noticed But we emphasize this here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. We emphasize the fact that we must believe rightly about who Jesus is, that he is the eternally existent Son of God, that he is the agent through whom the universe was created, that he is the very one through whom all of creation 
holds together. And because he is creator, every single one of us are accountable to him. And this same Jesus was born of a virgin, took on human flesh. As we just read in in Hebrews chapter four, he was tempted in every way we were tempted, yet he never sinned. And this Jesus, though he never sinned, though he should not have been condemned, took the condemnation in our place. And as I said at the beginning of the service, the gospel doesn't end there. He was buried. He was resurrected. 40 days later, he ascended on high with the witnesses there seeing him, and he is returning again to set up his kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel. And the response, all who trust in Jesus, his person, and his work will be children of God, children of the Most High. You see, friends, Jesus is just not one figure on a conveyor belt of historical religious figures that you can just pick from, like a smorgasbord. He is God. He is the unique Son of God who came to save you. So this is the first aspect of the command. This is what you are commanded to do. Believe rightly about Jesus. Second aspect of the command is to love one another. These are the holy affections. This command is also repeated again and again and again through 1 John. I won't take the time to show you all of them. Jesus himself said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, one command, two parts. Believe in the name of Jesus. Love the brethren. As we move towards the conclusion, John concludes this section with a promise in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This week as I was meditating here on verse 24 of this section, my mind went to a concept of a blanket. Whenever it's the winter time and I'm in the living room or something, I usually wear shorts all 12 months of the year, but I get a little chilly. So what do I do? I wrap up in a blanket. And that blanket's warm, isn't it? It's comforting. And here it seems like John is almost drawing the picture of a blanket. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Where did John get this concept from? We got it from Jesus. He's echoing what Jesus said personally in John 14, 23. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's obeying the commands. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is this? It's a Trinity blanket wrapping you up, protecting you, keeping you, fellowshipping with you. Is this not glorious? This is the promise and the confidence we can have. This confidence in who we are in Christ, the forgiveness we have in Jesus, and the fellowship we have with the Father, it gives us confidence in hope. And that confidence changes everything. I'll close with this. I remember reading a story that was submitted to a true account that was submitted to Reader's Digest, as often Reader's Digest would invite readers to submit uh, actual things that happened in their family. One gentleman wrote in, and he talked about how one time as a young teenager, he witnessed an uh, just argument between his mom and his dad. I and mean, it was one of those knock-dead, drag-out 
fights between a mom and a dad. About halfway through this argument, the father said, you know what? Why don't we each just get a piece of paper and we'll just list all the faults and failures we see in each other. The mom agreed to that. Sure, I'm game. So they both got a piece of paper and they began to furiously write their list, just writing down, writing down until finally they filled up the paper. They exchanged the lists. The father looked at the list from the mother and there he starts to read all of his faults and shortcomings and failures and how he can improve as a husband and a father. When she looked at the list he wrote, furiously filling the piece of paper, it said, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. See, our hearts condemn us. We see our faults, and our failures, our shortcomings, they are ever before us. But we have a father who wraps us in his blanket and he says, no condemnation. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. He repeats those words. And because of that, we live to obey his commands. Believe rightly about Jesus and to love the brethren. 